Welcome to the Egg Gap Evolution Podcast. I'm your host, Mariah Phillips. You can call me Mariah because that's my name. And I'm thrilled to have you on this journey with me and all of the spectacular guests who jump on the podcast to give you more options for educating children so that children have more options for building a magnificent future. The Egg Gap Evolution Podcast is a digital community where parents, educators, and innovators drop the details on how they are using their lives to help children explore the vastness of education beyond the textbook so that we can close America's education gap together. And just in case you didn't get the memo, producing a podcast is a whole lot of work. We're talking schedule coordination, production, the list goes on and on. So in return for bringing you this show every week, we just ask that you always find a way to share and use what you learn on the podcast to enrich children and families everywhere. Alrighty, without further ado, come along with me to meet our very next guest. Welcome back to the Egg Gap Evolution Podcast. Today, I am super excited for this episode and really curious as to how it's going to turn out because it's the very first time that I'll be interviewing my mother, who is a certified outstanding English teacher, tutor, summer camp developer, and just so happens to happen to be my teacher in many capacities. Not only as mom, but she was my first grade reading teacher, get this, at a public school in Baltimore County when my former reading teacher suffered a mental breakdown and couldn't return to school. And she homeschooled me and my three siblings throughout elementary school, middle school, and some of us even through high school. She currently teaches at an alternative school in Baltimore County, County, Maryland. And mom, thank you for joining the podcast today. We're so glad to be hearing from you. How are you? I'm doing quite well today, Mariah. This is really different. (laughs) Yes. Different is a word for it. Um, my mom and I talk a whole lot. So for us to, me to be interviewing her, it's like another phone call, except for you guys are, are listening in on it. Um, so, mom, why don't you tell the listeners more about you, where you're from, that sort of thing? Okay. I'm from Baltimore City, born and bred. Uh, best place on earth. I love crabs, obviously. I can eat them morning, noon, and night. Um, but I went to high, I went to elementary school, Matthew A. Henson, shout out. Um, then I went to junior high school, um, no mention of that one. And then I went to Western High School. And then from Western High School, I went to Dillard University in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, which was the best experience of my life. Um, I majored in English and, um, you know, just got to live my life, got away from Baltimore City for a while to learn different things. Um, Mardi Gras, like one of the coolest places you could ever, I mean, coolest events you could ever attend. The food is just amazing, all that good stuff. And now um, I came back, obviously, and started teaching at the age of 21 in 1986 in Baltimore City Public Schools and didn't have a clue what I was doing. (laughs) Okay, so let's let's back up a little bit. So you went to Dillard University, HBCU in New Orleans. Yes, Mardi Gras is awesome. I haven't been, but I have been to New Orleans and got a few hurricanes myself, but did you know what profession you wanted to pursue before you went to college? Um, did you have like a particular passion or did you just go and say, um, you know, let's see what happens? No, oh, when I initially went, I knew I wanted to write. I wanted to be a journalist. I was into journalism because I did that in high school. And so I was like, okay, well, who's going to help me learn to write? Might as well go into the humanities and become an English major. And that's how I ended up just absolutely, I love to read, obviously. I fell in love with that. And that's how I, you know, ended up really getting into teaching because I just had so many wonderful teachers. I had no desire to be a teacher. You couldn't have told me that at all. But I've just had so many really good experiences throughout my um, educational years that once I was told that there was a position available in the city schools, I was like, I think I could do something like that. I think I could teach because from the time I was like six or seven years old, I used to always bring home all the materials from school at the end of the school year and make everybody sit on the porch and listen to me <laughs> and teach them. So you were basically destined to be a teacher, but you didn't know it yet. I didn't know it. I just thought I was going to write. Just somehow I'm going to write. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's where I got it from um, because I'm a writerholic. Um, so, so you, you kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Um, so you didn't, you wanted to be a journalist. Um, what, what led up to you, you know, what did that process look like between you graduated from college 
thinking you were going to go into journalism and then ending up being a teacher? What was was there any disappointment involved? What did that summer after leaving college and coming back to Baltimore look like for you? Well, I, when I came home, I, I just was like, I don't even, I, I don't even know what I want to do now. Um, because I, it was such a relief to not have to write papers, to not have to get up at eight o'clock in the morning, go to, I mean, eight, seven or whatever, and go to class. So then I kind of like just chilled for a while. And then, you know, my father's like, if you, you, know, you can't sit around here all day. You need to get a job. And so, again, when his friend said, hey, they're hiring the Baltimore City Public Schools and your daughter has a degree. Why don't she go check it out? And that's I, I literally walked in the door at that time. I was on 25th Street, filled out an application interviewed me right then and there and they looked at my transcript and because obviously I had it right you know I had it with me after I went through all the process they said to bring stuff and I was hired and they sent me to a school now I have no clue how to teach I don't I've never gone to school for teaching but I always loved kids and I, I love for people to learn I absolutely hate ignorance so there I was sitting in the classroom lost in the sauce that is that is quite the story. And I remember like a few times you told me and I and my other siblings like about the salary back then, teacher salaries. Can you share with fifteen thousand? Fifteen thousand dollars a year. What the world? And but to me again, it was a paycheck. It was like I'm actually making some money and you know, it was terrible. I mean, what goodness gracious, it was fifteen thousand dollars a year. But Again, I'm 21, and I didn't think about it like that. I just like, okay, I have a job. Right, exactly. And that was it. A lot of times, you know, especially depending on your background, when you have a job that has more than one zero behind a paycheck, you right. know, it's, it's exciting, period. Um, and right. so when, for your first year, like that first year that you were in the classroom, is there a, an experience that you remember most vividly from your first year of teaching? And if so, why do you think that experience stuck with you? Well, initially, my first year, I was at a middle school. And, you know, I really didn't know anything about middle schools because I went to a junior high school. But I know I had eighth graders. And I walked in the classroom. And at that time, they had what was considered a long-term sub. And she was like, oh, good, you're here? Good, I can leave now. And she left. <laughs> When she left out of the room, I swear, they were eighth grade. They were on the floor. They were under the desk. They were just doing whatever they wanted to do. And I'm like, okay, well, what do I do now? And I, you know, just human nature. I was like, oh, you all have to get up off the floor. That's not going to work. And so one by one, I, the different ones that were on the floor, I was like, no, you got get up, get up, get in a chair. Your mother didn't raise you to sit on the floor. You know, she doesn't know you're here sitting on the floor. That's all I can say to these kids. There was no reason, I, there was no way to instruct at that time. I just had to get up off the floor. And they actually got off the floor. And so I was like, okay, cool. I got them off the floor. Now, you know, what are we going to do now? And so I just started talking to them. I had, I couldn't teach. I, I didn't even know what to do next. I just got them off the floor and started talking and find out who they were. And we began to gel in that little bit of time. And from that, I was, I went home like exhausted. I was like, oh, my God, they listen to me. I'm 21. They don't know that I don't know anything. So <laughs> that was just how it went. But I was so happy about that that I, obviously I came back the next day, number one, because it was a job. Number two, it irritated me that those children were on that floor. So it sounds and like that's my motivation. It sounds like n nobody had told them to get off the floor before. <laughs> Did it seem like this was the first time somebody told them to get off the floor? And like, I, what I, what were they doing? Were they just spinning in the floor? I just, middle schoolers, they're supposed to be learning. You show up for your first day of grade. school. They're 13, almost 14, about to go to high school. Why are they on the floor? But That's I think nuts. I think the thing was, and you have to remember, this was back in 1986. And I think that um, the long-term sub, obviously, she probably was overwhelmed. She probably didn't have the resources and support that she needed to handle these students. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes in this system, in any school, when, you know, kids are hard to manage, that's all we sometimes end up doing is closing the door and managing them. And I don't know, to this day, I believe these kids were probably, um, you know, had different kinds of um, 
learning disabilities and things like that, but probably had not received the diagnosis and obviously didn't have the people who could instruct them and take care of the needs that they had at that time. And so it's like, let's put them in here and do the best we can. Let, let, hopefully nothing bad happens. That's what I was thinking even back then, all those years ago. Um, that And, they, you know, they put me in there hoping that I could do something differently. And, and it ended up working out because, like I said, we, we began to form a relationship. And then I, um, you know, I'm a sports fan. You know, I'm very, at that time I was athletic. And so when, the, when they had the students versus the teachers playing basketball and things like that, I participated in any and everything I could just so these kids could see that I'm a person. And, you know, they like, at that time I was not Miss Phillips, I was Miss Sidmore. And so they like, Miss Sidmore is cool and all that kind of stuff, you know, handling the ball, whatever. And I, I was able to build some kind of relationship with them and they stayed off the floor. <laughs> That's so, good. And, and I like know. I said, all of them weren't on the floor. The ones who were not on the floor, they had nothing to do. They were bored, seriously bored. Yeah, boredom. I mean, it, you know, even as adults, when we get bored, we start doing things that we didn't, we don't think we'd find ourselves doing. Um, right. And and so, how do you strike that balance between? Because I, you know, I've been to public school, middle, uh, homeschool, and private school, and we've I've seen the cool teacher complex, but I've also seen it where there was the cool teacher who kids have fun with but didn't respect. And then I saw the cool teacher who the, the teacher who kids didn't have fun with and res, and were feared. And then there was the balance like you're talking about where kids have fun with the teacher and respected the teacher. So what do you think you did or what could another teacher or any leader of children do to strike that balance between, you know, I'm letting the kid know that I'm human. We're having fun. And but you're also going to respect me when it's time to get down to work. It's time to get down to work. Well, you know how I was, Mariah, the same way I was with you guys. I was, I'm the same way in school. So first of all, I always have expectations. I never walked in a classroom except that first year when I knew nothing. Um, I've never, after that, I've never walked in a classroom about expectations. And I've always had one philosophy that always works. When it's time to work, we work. When it's time to play, we play. And when it's time to play, I'm highly competitive. We play hard and I will beat you. And so... If you didn't do your work, you didn't get that chance to try to beat me in whatever it was. And, you know, if they if they, you know, got out of line or didn't do what I asked them to do, I stopped on a dime. Like, no, mm -mm, I, I nope, that does not work. We, I do not allow that. No, sir. No, ma'am. You have to do your work. And I, I'm fortunate that rarely did I have any issues. I mean, you always have some some kid who's going to really buck up and, you know, try things. But. I think the other thing I did really well was I let them see that I'm a person. If something was funny, I laughed. Yeah. If something was sad or whatever, you know, I, I would show empathy. I would be right there with them. I always talked to them before I taught. Always. I never started a lesson to this day without just talking about everyday things. Like what's going on in your family? What's happening in society, locally, nationally, globally? I'm always talking about something. And trying to feel, feel out where they are. And I try as much as, you know, you guys still laugh at me. You know how I am. I'm always like, who's the latest rapper, the artist, what's going on, different things like that. You know, I'm getting older, but my kids love that I know this stuff. And they're like, Ms. Wells, how do you know that? I'm like, ah, don't worry, I'm, I'm around here, you know. And I sometimes I try to speak their language. Yeah, for and then the record, I mess up, it's funny. For the record, everybody, my mom has TMZ beat. Like, there's no, there's no news <laughs> that comes out that she doesn't send us, me and my siblings, on Facebook first before TMZ scene. I don't care who it is. Somehow, Pam Phillips finds out first. So, <laughs> and I always so, tell you about the up and coming artists and before they blow up, and then what? They blow up. Yes, it's crazy. Like she'll she'll literally be like, "Hey, I found this cool new artist," and the artist will have like what. Eight, maybe 800 YouTube videos and you know uh, 1,000 Instagram fans and then she discovers them tells us about them and about a year later they're like on on they winning an Oscar or something I mean mm -hmm. or I'm sorry a Grammy or something it's crazy I don't know how you do it so <laughs> um but I do my homework clearly um 
but no no cell phones in the classroom. So <laughs> so you were Baltimore City Teacher of the Year honoree. Um, can we talk about that? Like how you talk to us about, you know, you talk to kids before you get into your lesson, you let them know that you're human. And so clearly that led to, I would assume, um, folks, how does that work as far as being, being, um, becoming an honoree for teacher of the year? So at that time back, that was, you know, again, back if I, then I think I've been teaching about three years then. And so, you know, they have a list of names. If everybody's names on this list, and they go around in the, the school and the staff votes. Like, who do you think exemplifies like integrity? Um, you know, of course, punctuality, like all those things that you should have. And then, and then as far as how you relate to the students, um, your classroom, your your ability to to get your lessons across, where students really understand and and are engaged and involved and. Somehow somebody nominated me because I didn't nominate myself. And the next thing I know, they voted and they were like, oh, oh, by the way, you won. And, you know, you get all dressed up and you go to this teacher honoree thing and you get this um, at that time, um, this brass little shiny apple and this beautiful certificate and all that. I was like, I was shocked. Like, I didn't think people paid attention to me like that. I think, like I said, I, I, I know I was at that time, I think I was 27. So, yeah, I've been in the system maybe, well, maybe five or six years then. I think I was 26 or seven, something like that, but still pretty young. Yeah, young. But Yeah, and for people to think that much of me, I, I, I was beyond honored. That was enough. <laughs> I didn't even care. I was like, okay, you know, you guys think that of me? Okay, cool. Right? <laughs> That's all I could say. Like, I didn't think people were paying attention to me, but, you know, um, yeah. I, was, I was just shocked. That's all I can say. Yeah, I mean, well, I would assume that, you know, most teachers, the majority of teachers want to go home at the end of the day. You stay back and play basketball. So that oh, that alone. Oh, I was always. Probably I was, I stay. I love. And we, and we tried clubs. I would talk to the kids about, you know, especially the girls, like, you know, doing your hair. Like, they thought I was cool because at that time, you know, I was, I'm young, young. Yeah. And I'm not married. And I don't have any of these things attached to me that would take up my time. And so I was able to do all those things and, and have been like, of course, relate. And then, of course, they would look at me like I was like a big sister and, and they would ask me my age and I would tell them like, you know, I'm 23 or 24. And they're like, oh, you're so young. You're like our sister. I'm like, no, I'm your teacher. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Don't get too comfortable. But, yeah. you know, that's how yeah. it worked out. So do you think, do you, I saw you teach, you teach, um, you still teach middle school, right? Yeah, I love middle school, believe it yeah. or not. Yeah, so you, you know, you run a classroom today, um, you know, 2021. Do you run your classroom today the same as you did back in the 80s? Or have you had to make any adjustments to create a healthy classroom environment um, now, you know, now that it's what, 20 something years later? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot different. Um, first of all, I'm at an alternative school, so... Um, the students that I have, the, it's a much smaller classroom. Back then I used to have, you know, I remember one time I had 34 kids in a class, but now some of my classes are as small as four students, as large as 13. But they obviously, I'm there at my school, so they've been removed from their comprehensive schools and sent to where I am. And um, But what's different here is I think I spend a lot more time in a parent role than a teacher role. Um, okay. A lot of them have a lot of home issues that are severe and that are really heartbreaking. And so you spend a lot of time being that parent and modeling what a, a mom or a dad figure for them. And um, really ha your integrity has to be like on a thousand because these kids really have trust issues, um, respect issues and all that. So, you know, um, I'm very, very careful how I correct them. Years ago, I could say something like, you know, boy, I know you need to have a seat, you know, back <laughs> when I was much younger. But now it's like, um, come on, let's have a seat and let's talk about it. You want to sit down or you want to take a walk? What, what, what works for you? Like you do a lot of um, uh, mental gymnastics, I'll say, to try to figure out where this student is so that 
they can talk to and relate to you because they're in pain a lot of times. And, and sometimes, you know, I've seen it where some people still have the antiquated drill sergeant bark mentality with these children and it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, if, if I don't know where they came from that morning, I don't know what's going on in their lives every day. I have some idea because we get a little information about that, but before I can instruct them, I've got to know them. I've got to understand where they are. And I, and I totally, I'm telling Mariah, this is really important for me. I structure all of my lessons about around, because I teach reading and English. So I structure a lot of the, the stories and the things that I give them. I structure that around what they're dealing with. And I try to find a lot of things that they can relate to and talk about. We do a lot of discussion. And I say to them all the time, learning is more than writing something on a piece of paper. You, that just because you put something on a piece of paper and turn it in doesn't mean that you learn that day. You can learn a lot from a discussion by hearing different people's opinions and viewpoints and reading and stuff like that. So I, I, the biggest thing for me now is relationship is more important to me than instruction because I can't instruct you if you can't relate to me Yeah, and I can't relate to you. Right. And so would you recommend, um, you know, you and I talk about this a lot as far as curriculums nowadays needing to lean more towards having those relatable examples, you know, or, or just covering the full scope of what it means to be a kid in America. In addition to race, kids come from diverse backgrounds. They come from diverse, diverse home situations. And so what, um, how important do you think it is for curriculums to start, you know, evolving into something that's more inclusive on so many levels? Like, what does a, an inclusive curriculum do for for a kid or an inclusive way of teaching do for a kid that the traditional version of teaching and presenting information does not? Well, it does everything because I know for me, when I was going to school and I, you know, I'm, I'm a black woman and I was obviously a black kid and I went to Matthew A. Henson as an elementary student and the 94 Five percent of my teachers were black, so I was really taught by a lot of black teachers and and of course and black men. But I ne- I never saw myself in anything. I remember the book City Limits and all that kind of stuff, and reading about Sally and Jane and all that. You know, nobody ever said nobody ever said Pam. No one said Lynn or Ray. Kids need to see themselves in these stories. They need to see themselves in these books. Whereas I I see it changing because. In the past year, we've done some Jason Reynolds, uh, read some of his stuff. We we did um, Henry Louis Gates, Dark Sky Rising. And so I, none of that happened when I was in school. Um, we did, um, uh, man, I can't think, Colson Whitehead. We just did him. And um, so when we do those, I notice, especially the, the black kids in my class, the boys, they really get into this stuff. They, yeah. they love this. And you know, we've got, these curriculums have got to improve. They are still, to me, when I look at some of that stuff, I'm like, what? Right. You want me to do what? What this? Like, nobody can relate to this. I do understand where these kids are coming from. You know, what we're talking about socioeconomic, no matter what we're talking about, a lot of the stories in those curriculums are just antiquated one, you know, and just unrelatable. Corny corny unrelatable to the majority of students in america people are living real lives and like you can look at tv shows that for kids nowadays the tv shows for kids nowadays aren't as you know they're not as corny as the curriculums are and that could be a reason why the kids are more interested in media and things like that because those shows you know the whole idea of creating shows and stuff is to speak the person's living or real life situation back to them in a way and so it's I would crucial. feel it, it's yeah. everything. In yeah, because I just kid. recently, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I'm just re, just recently, um, I was I was choosing a story for the kids to read and was talking about how this kid had um had flown to Seattle to see his grandparents for the summer and all this other stuff. <clears throat> and so, you know, the next day I just asked the kids, I was like, how many of you guys have been on a plane? Not one hand had gone up. So, okay, you're talking about flying to the story, flying to see your grandparents in Seattle. These kids have never been on an airplane. So you've got to keep that in mind. How many of you have been on a vacation? I know when I was growing up, we never went on a vacation. My parents did not have a car. We were on a bus wherever we went. And if you're lucky, we caught a cab to something. And so we've got to think about that. We can't just put out these, um, you know, 
crazy curriculums and these stories that, yes, I can, I can hit the standards. I can pull out concepts and teach different things, but I can, that doesn't mean I can get the kids engaged. But the other day I, I did a lesson and I was doing, I talked to them about Viola Davis and, um, I just showed them, um, a clip of her in Ma Rainey and I was, and I showed them, you know, talked to them about her life and her upcoming and how, I mean, upbringing and how, you know, they, their family struggled and all the challenges and stuff like that. And once I put the, the two minute clip on and once that they watched that and was over, they were like, show us more. Let's talk some more. Like I, I, you know, just go all into like, they could relate to the, the language there's all these black people on the screen and keep in mind, I have kids in my classroom who are, they are not all black. I have black and white students. I have kids of, of, of every background come to my school. Yeah. And so um, they all enjoyed it. It was, it was culture. Right. It was something different. You know, it was a real, it was what the world is, diverse. <laughs> you know? Exactly. There, there's there's so many absolutely different. absolutely loved it. Yeah, cultures in the world. And, and I think that's really important to display. And I want to um, go back to something that you said a couple of minutes ago about, you know, back when you were first in the classroom, you weren't married. So you got to do a whole bunch of different things, spend time after school with kids and sports events and things like that. But then <laughs> this is like where, where me and my siblings <laughs> come to picture. You did get married and you did have uh-huh. kids. And, and you, um, so what made it motivated you to put your career aside and become a full-time mom, a career that you were so passionate about? Um, what motivated you to say, okay, I'm going to put this aside or did you ever plan to come back to it? I know you're back to it now, but was that the plan? Okay. Like It was hard to leave it, but when I, you know, obviously by then I had seen a lot of stuff in the system that I just was like, if I ever have kids, oh, they're not coming to this. Not because I just... I just knew that kids have the ability to learn so much more and absorb so much more. But before that, I still, once my oldest, Simone, um, went, got turned five, I obviously went to public school. What made me um, truly stop was when Jared was born. And, and you know, from the, before he was even got here, we knew he was going to have all kinds of problems. That's before kid number three, guys. Told. That's kid number three. He was going to have all kinds of problems. First, they said he was... Um, they, they said that he would never walk, he would never talk, that he is basically going to be a vegetable. And I'm like, oh, dear God. And I was like, I think he's moving. They were like, oh, no, those are phantom kicks and all that crazy stuff. So then they said, oh, it would be Down syndrome. And I was like, okay, well, I take that. You know, he's not paralyzed. He'll be moving. But long story short, when he got here, by the time he was two, no, I'm sorry, by the time he was three, he was not speaking. You know, he just he was flapping his hands and you know, he, he was just running away. He just wasn't, he wasn't there. He, he was not engaged. He didn't communicate at all. And, you know, I was taking him around to getting him tested. Finally, he went to Kennedy Krieger and they gave me the diagnosis that, you know, he had um, receptive and expressive language disorder. He was somewhere on this autism spectrum. He, um, he, what was the other one? I, I cannot remember. Oh, that he would not speak and that he needed to learn sign language. And so that's, that started that whole thing. Like, okay. Oh, Lord. So, you know, you just like, you know, trying to figure out what, what, what happened to him? Like the first two were fine. Why does he have all these issues? And so, you know, you're scrambling around, you're trying to figure out how can you help him? And believe it or not, my biggest issue, my biggest concern was not even him. I was like, what does that mean for his two sisters? Like I was thinking, okay, if I die, when I die, like if he has all this, who's going to take care of him? Yeah. That's how I was thinking. I was like, oh, so I, I got to figure out this thing. And so, you know, he went to public school initially. He started school like at three and all the different programs they had, extended year services and all that, which they were, they were pretty good, but they were, they were okay. I won't say pretty good. They were like um, crumbs to me okay. and he needed the whole loaf, obviously. And so I just started looking around, like, where can he go? Who can help him? Who can help him? And um, the thing that hurt me the most was he was in second grade. And I remember his second grade teacher just told me she was so mean to him. And she wouldn't let him get recessed an entire semester. 
And obviously he doesn't, he can't, he doesn't talk and tell me all these things. Right. And so we had our conference and she was like, I'm sorry, but Ms. Phillips, we, I just, I'm not good at teaching slow children. And wow, I was, that was the last said, time I'm not school. good at teaching slow children. She told me to my face, she was not good at teaching slow children. I was like, okay, that's it. I, I, but I, I mean, I had to get out of there because, you know, you know me, I didn't want to say some things <laughs> and do some things. So I was like, okay, it just hit me. So like, Dang, she said that to my face. But at the same time, she was honest because she was not helping him. Yeah, at least I didn't you. find out that he didn't get recess until he was about 12 when he started, you know, expressing stuff that happened to him. And so that's when I said, you know what, I can teach him better. Yeah, so and as immature as her actions and words were, at least it was the alarm was, was founded. Yeah. She, she has no idea to this day what a, what a favor she did for me. She yeah. made me fight harder for him and get him all the services. And I'm telling you, Loyola College in, in Howard County is where he went and got his speech therapy. And they were the ones who gave me such incredible hope. I cannot, I think her name was Nina Goodman. I'm not, I could be wrong, but she was, you remember when you used to go with me, she mm-hmm. was amazing. She had such hope for Jer and she used to tell the time he's going to be fine. Yeah, I totally. Remember. I need to hear that every week because I didn't. I honestly didn't believe it because you know it took a long time to get there. Yeah, and, and you know, so 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 you got married, you had kids, you went from being a a school teacher to a full time mom. You know, you you by your third child, Jeremiah. Um, he had this diagnosis, this very scary diagnosis for someone who, you know, this is the first time you're a new, not a new parent, but fairly new. You know, we weren't, pre- we weren't old. We were young yeah, when he was born. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, and, 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 you know, we went through this whole process of you were getting us in public school, raising us and also managing, you know, what, what, how am I going to bring my son up to speed or h- help him and his siblings have the best life possible. So I'm sure that there are plenty of parents, new parents, maybe even parents who have had a child who's on the autism spectrum for a couple of years. So what advice would you have, would you give for a new parent who might be paralyzed by the fear of such a diagnosis? And what are the first steps that you recommend they take to move forward with a clear plan of action? Um, I think the first thing, and I wish I'd known this, I know it now, is just to take a breath realize that there are resources and people out there that you just have to do your work, do the work. Talk, find, you know, like what I did, the first thing I did was I went to um, Baltimore's Child and I just started looking up things like, and then I was just, even back then, the, the computer I had dial up and all that. <laughs> um, for, for those who don't know, Baltimore's Child is like, is a free publication that they publish in Baltimore, where we're from. Um, and they recommend a bunch of different activities and um, different places that service children around the Baltimore city and county area. Yeah. And I looked at like special needs and things like that. And then, and then I, I, I just, honestly, I went and had him evaluated by three different places. Like, I'm like, okay, I want to hear this evaluation and I want to hear, and if they somewhat are similar, then, okay, then they, they're on the right path because, you know, so many people were telling me things. And I think that's the thing you don't want to do. You don't want to listen to a whole lot of people telling you your child is this, and your child is that, and this. Because the one mistake that, that ha- happened that I was able to catch was when they told me that Jay would never speak, I listened to them, I believed them, and I put them in a program with kids who were severely and profoundly, uh, had profound disabilities. And he and a lot of them, he would get on that bus and, you know, a lot of them had to have, you know, uh, the helmets and different kinds of um, apparatus to support them. And um, I remember that one day I said, let me ride over there and see how he's doing, because I didn't want to be the too much of a helicopter parent, which I was. But I let him go quite, quite a few days and I didn't go check. And when I went to check, he had started modeling the behavior of all the other students, like he had drooped his head and he just, he was drooling and he was, in my opinion, regressing from the, the strides he had made when he went to Kennedy Creek and all that. And when he was with Mina and all, and so I immediately took him out and I said, I, said, I think he's in the wrong place. And they were like, no, 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 no. And they said he's this, that, and the other. And I was like, no, he wasn't doing these things. So 
I think that's something you have to be careful to let all these different people tell you what you need. You've got to really take the time to, to know your child and don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. Because I think sometimes family members are ashamed that their kid is not quote unquote normal, whatever that is. And so that helped me. And I, it showed me, Pam, do your homework and you fight for your kid and do, forget what everybody else is saying. What do you believe and what do you want for Jeremiah? What are your goals? And I believed wholeheartedly after that, that I knew Jeremiah could be a-okay. He could function and, and be able to make it in this world, even with these um, challenges that he has, which he still has them today. But you know, he, you wouldn't know unless you know. Right, exactly. You wouldn't know. Um, unless, you know, unless you're hearing this story now and it's amazing the, the progress and like, I mean, you would just have to be there guys to, to see the transformation. Um, and speaking of taking your own path and not necessarily accepting what people tell you and just doing your own thing when it comes to your kids, which you know is best. Let's talk about homeschooling. So you homeschooled me and you know, you have three other kids. So you homeschooled the four of us sometimes at, you know, some of us were in public school at times, some of us were home, but then there was one point when you were homeschooling the four of us and we are stair step kids. So what um we're we're one to two years apart between between all of us um and this was the early 2000s you know you're a black woman from Baltimore City living in Baltimore County early 2000s by no means financially wealthy and you know back then especially homeschooling was a thing that a lot of people especially in our community said you know well this is what rich people do what are you doing um, and so what <laughs> it was, um, and so why, why did you decide to homeschool your children? Like that is a big thing to take on. What was the motivation for you? Well, I always wanted to homeschool my children from the time I knew I was going to have Simone, which was the first one. I always, I always felt that, um, home is a great place to teach your kids. So much it's, it's bigger than. English and science and social studies and all of that. It was, to me, I just, you know, thought like, this is going to be so much fun that we can get up when we feel like it. We can learn at, you know, anytime we want to, we can do all kinds of things, go all kinds of places. No one's telling us how we can learn and when we should learn. And so when I, when I made that decision to finally bring everybody, you, of course, Jared was the biggest motivating factor that I didn't want him just to be home by himself and not have any real social interaction. But I also knew that socially he struggled, you know. And so I'm like, not only that, you know, I just, I just did not have the confidence in so many things that were happening in schools and with kids and so many things you would see that just, I said, I can't, I cannot do this. I, I, I got to get my kids to enjoy and always love learning. And I wanted you all to see that learning is fun. Right. And so I, I, when I first did it, I was all like, yeah, this is fun. We're going to have a good time. We're going to get closer. We're going to love each other even more. And that ain't happened <laughs> because not that far. I mean, we do love each other, but it was, I was, I had those overwhelming moments putting lessons together and for four different kids. And for all these different learning styles and, and finding time to do all this. And at the end of the day, I'm wiped out. But I think for me, um, the biggest thing is I, I wanted to know my children even more. And I more than anything, I wanted you all to know me and see me. And like I said, and we had fun. Let's be real. We had a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. We had a blast. <laughs> it was a lot. But the, the financial part, I will say, was always a challenge. But we also joined some amazing homeschool groups and got to go places and meet kids and do all kinds of things. Like I, I will always remember going to Millersville and the people who had the horses. And then we sang to the singers and all that kind of stuff. Like we got to meet people who were comfortable, wealth, you know, money wise and people who were not so comfortable. Yeah. And we, and, we also you used know, to with, um, make sandwiches and drop them off. <laughs> We would. Yes. Okay. So if you're not from Baltimore, I don't know how other cities who have a lot of um, a, a large homeless population, but in Baltimore, there's a large homeless population. And so one of the things we used to do at home was we would make sandwiches and then we would drive around the city um, and homeless folks might be on the corner, you know, asking for change. And 
we didn't always want, you know, have change to give. We need, we needed to change. Um, but we did give sandwiches and things like that. And so I really appreciated that about our experience was that not only did we learn and have fun, but we also learned compassion. You know, we learned how to be selfless, those sorts of things. People might not necessarily think that they, that kids care, but I can definitely see even in high school, we weren't in homeschool anymore. Simone and I, my older sister, Simone, we would sign up to go volunteer at homeless shelters. And we just got a whole lot of knowledge and wisdom from strangers because people have stories. And I think that was one thing that I really appreciated about homeschool. It was the fun, the stories. And, and a lot of folks talked about how we would suffer socially. Clearly, that's not the case. I decided oh to God. start a podcast yes. where I'm talking to complete strangers. But um, to, yeah. as far as those those myths about social implications, um, I know for a fact that you received pushback from your family oh, yeah. and things like that. So what, what did those conversations sound like? And how did you how did you handle the, that pushback? Did you talk? Did you plead your case or did you just say, hey, I'm just going to back off and do what I want to do? And your opinion is your opinion. Well, you know, we have educators in our family. A couple of them were principals, retired principals and um, social workers and all that kind of stuff. So they would say things like, you know, you're making that's such a bad that's a bad decision. Pam. That's a bad idea. What about socially? You know, they're not going to be able to fit in. They're going to be like, you, you ever see those people? They're so weird because they haven't gone anywhere. They, it's home. And I'm like, you know, no, 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 no. Social you're socialized from day one when you come into the world, really, if you think about it, you know, you greet right. your parents and whatever. But I none of that bothered me because I know how I am. I'm I, when I want to do something, like I always say like a, a toddler, that toddler wants whatever it is, he's gonna find a way to get it. And so my attitude was like, Yeah, you guess what? You guys do have you want to raise your kids, raise your kids. This is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. Now, I think another part of it was, you know, people, I think a lot of people in my family wanted to try to do it, but I, I just don't think they had the the mental um, strength because a lot of people think you have to be a teacher to do it, and you don't. You just have to have that desire. And so it didn't bother me. I went on and did what I had to do, and I, I had to hear, I heard it for years. The whole time I did it, I kept hearing like, what is going to happen? They don't have a high school diploma. Well, how are they going to get into college? Like, are they, they're going to be awkward and all this kind of stuff. Look, some people people have PhDs and what the world considers awkward. People have high school diplomas and people consider them uneducated or whatever. You cannot worry about things like that. If it's something you're passionate about and you really want to do, you can't listen to that. These naysayers are just that. They're naysayers. It really sounds kind of corny, but what do you say? Right. I said, I want all four of my kids home. Even your father at the time wasn't a fan of it. He thought it was just too much. He felt, you know, they need to go. They need to go to school because people were in school. (laughs) I mean, they're in school. They're learning every day. And I will say this and you know this over the over time, you've heard people say, like, you guys are so different than the most students. Yeah. You know, um, because you didn't you didn't have the. The pressure, I think, of some of the things that happen in schools, and that's no not I'm not knocking schools because some of them they have to be there, obviously. And, and there are things that work in schools, and there are things that don't work, and there are things that work in homeschool, and things that don't always work in homeschool. But for me, as for how I felt, is that it takes the limitations off. Yeah, that's the and, part that I, I enjoy think- most. You know, a lot of people, since some folks don't have a look into the homeschooling process, some folks kind of can view it as like, you, all right, you have these feral children running around <laughs> or like these feral nerds. But there is a process where we had to check in and we had homeschool reviews with like officials, you know, that it wasn't just that we were we were home and learning whatever you chose. And we, you know, went from sixth grade on up and no one ever checked in on us, you know? Oh, right, right. There's always checks. And, and and if you're not meeting the standard, which personally, I thought the standard was absolutely extremely low, to be yeah. honest. I mean, you know, we go to those homeschool reviews and they, again, retired principals, they look at your work and, you know, some would try to look up a little harder, but be, be honest, how much can you gain or figure out or from flipping through someone's notebook? And yeah. You know, sometimes they would talk to you and ask you guys stuff, but 
again, what are you trying to find? Because kids can go to school the entire year and still not get much out of it. I not learn anything. I've got students to this very day, sadly, who are in my reading class, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And honestly, they're not reading past kindergarten, first, second grade level. And and they've been in school all this time. So, you know, I think for me, I, I got to see your progress and see that, okay, what should you know at this age? And how should you be, what, you know, how are you, are you fluent in your reading and all that? And, you know, I could see that, you know, some things were challenged and some things were not. And that, and I knew what to pin, I could work on the thing that I thought you needed more. Whereas in school, sometimes the teacher has to move on. Things have to go forward. Right. There are 20, so, sometimes 30 kids that the teacher has right, to keep Somebody's going to get lost. Somebody's going to get left behind. It's yeah. a fact. I think it's all no child left behind all you want. Right. Uh, somebody gets left behind sometimes. <laughs> and A lot of somebodies. So looking back, would you have done anything differently um, with the homeschool experience or are you totally satisfied with how things went? The only thing I would like to have is more money <laughs> because more money means more resources and things that you can do. But I wouldn't change a thing. I, I, you know, I am a strong advocate of homeschooling because I think people have this false belief about homeschool. When you homeschool your kid, it's just you're doing school at home. Right. Take away all the labels, take away all the myths and all that, and do what you want. Look at curriculum. What do you want to know? Or talk to people about some great resources and, and things. There's so much out there now. They've got homeschool groups for uh, teachers talking about Black people homeschool or whatever. Whatever it is you want to do, you can do it in homeschool. For me, I wouldn't change. It's the best thing that I think I've ever done for my children out of trying to be, you know, a good mother to you all. I think that's the best thing I ever did. Yeah, we think so, too. We talk about all the time. And so let's let's do some role play for a little bit. So (laughs) I'm an eight year old. It doesn't have to necessarily be me, but let's say I'm an eight year old. You're my mom and you're pulling me out of public school. So what would I be in in the second or third grade? What are you? Second, third, yeah. Okay, yeah. And so you're pulling me out of public school. I'm used to all my friends. I'm used to recess, all this jazz. And you're saying, all right, we're starting homeschool. And I am eight and I'm not happy about it. Can you give me your <laughs> one minute pitch for why I should get excited about homeschool? Um, easy, because I'm going to say, you think school is fun? Wait till you come home. The fun we're going to have. And I would just start telling you all the things. I would think of all the things. Like, if it were, even if it were you, how you love brat dolls. Guess what, Mariah? You can wake up and do your brat dolls and have all the fun you want. And then when I'm finished with this one, I can come get you. And then I'm, that one, you can go back to your brat dolls. You can see your friends. You're still going to see your friends when they come home from school. As all kinds of activities you can be a part of. And you don't have to worry about one grade. You will never worry about did you pass or did you fail? It's do you understand or do you need some more help? And I'm yet to meet a kid who you say fun, school's going to be fun. Right. They're like, okay, they might be like, oh, how? But you, you make it fun. You know, you you, you make that, st- you know, when I, I remember when I'm, uh, I was, Cecilia was in uh, high school, I think, and we were doing Cecilia's, J.D. Salinger. Cecilia's the youngest, guys. <laughs> yeah, and we were, we were doing um, J.D. Salinger. We were just studying this author, J.D. Salinger, and she dressed up like him and, you know, gave her a whole report and all that. And you guys were cracking up, but did she not get into the character? Yeah, and I author. think I mean, it was amazing. That's what was really special is that, like you said, we we would, we sometimes we would get up at 6 a.m. to start school, sometimes 11 we would play, we would do work, we'd eat, we'd go somewhere, we'd come back and do work. And I think that what at least I can speak for myself and it would help prepare me for the future that we're meeting now. You know, people are working from home. The world is not so cut and dry. There's a whole lot of gray. And some folks struggle to to evolve to this the new way of working, and a new way of being. And I think that even back then in the late 90s, early 2000s, when having such a flexible life wasn't popular. We were already doing that. And so it really made, it makes for, at least for me, it makes life easy now that folks are working from home and doing things, you know, having to cook lunch and just, just juggle your life in a way that wasn't such a thing before. Um, And so 
you you mentioned kids not having to really worry about grades um, in homeschool, you know, if you if you choose to do that when you homeschool your kids. So um, you've always talked about this concept of having a learning experience that is better than good grades. So what is that? What does better than good grades mean to you? Well, because the emphasis you hear it all the time is like, you know, grades, grades. What's your grade? What did you get? Like this what, parents sometimes become so consumed with the grades. Like when I go to meetings and things like that with parents and, you know, it's like, OK, you have an E in this class, which I mean, you're obviously failing. And I'm like, that E doesn't really mean the kid isn't intelligent. It doesn't mean the kid hasn't learned anything. It, it could be a whole other, the kid could be depressed. Right. And so we're focused on the grade and we're not focusing on the kid. And so is it important that they learn? Yes, it is. But do they get the concept? Do they understand? How do I know you understand? Can you explain to me what it is that you know? about whatever it is I, uh, I hope I taught you. And like, do you have to be able to write that? Yes, I, I think you need to learn how to write sentences. I think you need to understand all these skills and concepts. But does that kid with the 98, does that mean that that kid has is smart and learn more? No, I know of kid. Oh, shoot, we had a whole college cheating scandal. I know that Grades don't always indicate your level of intellect and how much you know and understand. Yeah. Heck, I was in college. I mean, please, I hated going to economics. And I mean, we did some things. That's all I'm going to say to, to pass the class because I wasn't going to be in economics. I'm in the humanities. And so for me, I don't put that much weight on a grade because then you sometimes you find kids, all they care about is getting the grade and getting the work done. Yeah. And so they get the work done. Doesn't mean they do it with with qual, qual, it's not quality work all the time. Sometimes it's just done. And so I want students, I tell my students all the time, even when I when I give them feedback, I, you know, they can eventually see their grade, but I never put the grade on the paper. I always, you know, put it in the learning management system that we have and they can go see their grade. But I'll say things like, you know, you've done a good job, such and such. Here's what you need to go back and look at. Um, you know, you might want to spend a little more time on that particular paragraph or whatever. You know, I don't quite under you didn't give the support that that is needed to the degree you could. I still have questions. Whereas I could just take the paper, give the feedback and say, okay, here's your 72. Like, what is a 72? What does that right, mean? Right. What does that mean to the kid? Like, and, what is and that? I sometimes got, oh, go ahead. I've only got, you know this low level of understanding it. I mean, you know, when you went, when you went to high school, grades were everything. Yeah. And it was so weird for me because we had come out of, we had come out of homeschool where it was like, just make sure you learn it, you know, and explore and you um, write, you know, it was just so free and you just so confident in what you were doing for yourself as the student, you know, as children. And then I got to high school and it was like, okay, you here's a 72 you know I remember in English class I had an English class in freshman year of high school and I got a 72 or something like that and I was so shocked I was like what does this mean and the teach and I had gotten it because I didn't stay in the margins and I didn't use like the font that the teacher wanted me to use and if I hadn't gone back and asked her why I got the 72 instead of I guess a high grade that I I knew I deserved because I gave it my all I would have thought for some reason, you know, I may, I may have thought that I was inadequate rather than the fact that I just didn't follow the rules that that teacher wanted me to use when turning in the paper. And, right. and yeah, and because here's a, here's my my concern with, with that sometimes is that, you know, I'm I'm trying to perform to that particular standard that they have right. set. And then, you know, I go somewhere else. They have a different standard and I go somewhere else. They have a different standard. And like, you know, some kids, some kids end up thinking that they're not smart based on a grade. Right. Based on that, someone else's standard. Yes. Going around and trying to meet complete stranger standards instead of believing in what you can do for yourself. Yeah. Because, you know, like I, I obviously I told you again, I teach a lot more reading than I do English uh, um, this past year. So two years, but I know I have a lot of students who literally absolutely hate to read. They think they can't read. They think that they're slow and low and dumb and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you don't like to read because you have not been given anything really interesting and fun to read. Yeah. You read passages all the time. I'm going to give you a book. We're going to get into this book and 
you know, I, last year we we did this book, um, Refugee, and I mean, I couldn't get these children were gone. I mean, I they literally we ended up having them serve as immigration, like immigration lawyers in which they had to determine why should this child receive, you know, um, what is the thing? It's just left my mind, um, asylum. And why should this, or should they be sent back to their country and all that kind of stuff? These are kids who don't like to read. Yeah. And, and then we had a real, the, you know, a, real a real view of like what the world is like, you know, that's a very yeah. tough topic to cover, but that is a reality for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, and, and they, and for some students, they knew nothing about it. And they were like, Oh, I didn't know this. And these were true stories with a kid who was in Syria. And so, you know, I feel like when we did all of that, we had our principal come in and, and judge, they were lawyers and they presented their cases and all that. But one side had to win. And thankfully, cause this was another teacher did the same thing. My side, the students I had won. Um, he thought that they had a better case and they were so over the moon. Do you know they did not get a grade for that as far as like you got an A, B, C, you know, they all just did well. And like, cause, because I teach reading, they don't get graded like uh, A, B, C. They get S, satisfactory, or they get a U, unsatisfactory, which they could all, they literally have to never come to school and do anything to get a U because it's all about, are they working? Are they progressing? Yeah. Yes, they are. And yeah. you could have, when I say the screams they let, they would be yawn happy, like hallelujah happy. That's so, great. You know. And along with that, well, um, zooming out a bit, what do you, you know, what is the world taking too long to realize when it comes to the way that we educate children? And how are you changing that with the way that you're educating children? Well, the big one, I read a book a long time ago called A Mind at a Time. And I think... Um, the one thing the world's behind is that everybody is different mm-hmm. and everybody learns differently. And we cannot force people into this system of how we want them to learn. We need to give kids an opportunity to learn the way they learn. And by that, I mean, I have a student right now. He, he loved, he's very creative. We don't have many opportunities for him to be creative. And so it's a struggle for him. But when he gets that opportunity, when he goes to art or when we create projects in which he can be creative, he outshines them all. And so I think we've got to get to that place where let kids learn how they learn. We do have the ability to do that, even in public education. We call that differentiation, right? We say, you know, everybody's solid, but we don't really do it. Yeah. We don't. We don't scaffold like we say we can. Like, you know, you know how a scaffold is. We say all these things. We have all this, you know, teacher language. But when it comes down to actually doing it, we don't. And everybody's different. Jeremiah proved it, that, yes, he learns differently. I mean, we let him go and do the things that he likes to do. He will go and research on his own. Yeah. This boy knew more about dinosaurs than any paleontologist that walked the earth. Exactly. And he did that on his own. Yeah. Because that was his passion. Right, exactly. And and clearly your passion is is education and is, you know, letting children learn how they they will and, you know, being there for children and period. And so can you recall a time where a child's words changed your life forever? And do you remember what that child said? When I was teaching in Baltimore City, I was, you know, back in the late mid late eighty six and up, I guess that's late. Um, um I'm big on writing, so I used to have the kids write all the time. And she used to say to me, Miss Ms. Sidney, you made me love to write. And I, I kind of, I was happy, but this girl, when I would give her a writing assignment, she'd come in there with like 12 pages. Cause you know, there are no computers and typewriters like that then in the classrooms. And the people, I, they had typewriters, but our kids didn't type. Um, and she would come in and she was like, you made me, you know, love to write. Or students were like, you made reading fun. Or, you know, I never thought I would like English and stuff like that. Um, And even just the other day, a student said um, they were coming out of one class. I won't mention the class. (laughs) anyway. And they were like, oh, yes, it's it's B day. We get Miss Phillips today. We're going to have some fun. And so, you know, I like hearing stuff like that because, you know, I know that they are not seeing learning as, oh, I got to go to reading or, oh, I got to go to class. Yeah. Like it's good. It's. So that's the thing I like about English, because even though I have to follow the curriculum to a large extent, 
I can still make it enjoyable. Yeah. And so I could, it's so, I mean, I've even run the kids as a, you know, Mariah, you guys are with me. I'll run into students and I mean, they'll run into me and they still remember me. And they're like, she was the best. She was my favorite, this kind of thing. And I wasn't, I don't think I was their favorite because it was just fun, but um, I was always consistent. I'm, I know people find this hard to believe, but I had favorites, but they never knew it. <laughs> yeah. I, they never, you know, like they know. I no kid can tell me that I, they, they could say that I favored one student over another. The ones who gave me the headache the most were the ones I was always drawn to. Yeah, and I've been called some things and had all kinds of stuff happen. But they never, it, I never took it personally. I absolutely love children. I love seeing them learn, and it's and I love having fun. I can get, you know, I can get on their level and just get to be a kid. Every yeah. single day. Well, like, you, you know, I know that firsthand. Um, and so what what um is the best advice that you've ever received that you believe you've ever received? Oh, I've heard a lot of um I think the best advice because I can't say best, I would say some really good advice that I've gotten is number one, be prepared, always plan. I don't wing it. I do, I can tell when a teacher's winging it. When I was a student, and you know when you were a student, you can tell when a teacher's winging it. Mm-hmm. So plan and plan with that child and all those children in mind. Like and do all different kinds of things. That's what I I learned. Like your class, your there are all kinds of learners. So I did all kinds of stuff. You got I learned number one, get them out of their seat. I don't care what subject it is, get them out of their seat. But the biggest one I learned, and it's not hard, it's not easy to do, and that's to be your authentic self. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, I, I'll give this last case in point. So um, just a couple of days ago, we're teaching students about because uh, about different cultures and how in different societies and cultures, they have their way of greeting. They have their way of all things, religion, whatever it may be. And so we had the students create their own societies and their cultures. And, and so we found, you know, of course, they're diff- everybody's was different. So this one student. Religion was really important in her culture, but another student, religion was not. And so she asked me to play the preacher in her culture. And so I got the chance to get up there. And so the students all sitting there. Now he's out in the hallway waiting to come in. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And so he comes in. I'm like, good morning, church. Stand to your feet and give God some praise. You know, I'm just going to preacher mode and all. And And so he walks in. I was like, well, God is so good. He's brought one of his special people in today. And you remember, in his culture, there's no religion. And I was like, welcome to this wonderful house of God and all this. And he's looking strange. Like, and, and I was like, open your mouth and thank God that he brought you here today. And so he doesn't say anything. And I said, look at this sinner in this, in this house of God. And then the girl who came up with the religion, she gets hysterical. And then we pause it right there. And then we just start talking about how offensive it was to her that he didn't respect religion. And then at the same time for him, he's like, what is all this religion thing? And so in that brief moment, I got to be me because, you know, I like to, I'm I'm a comedian on the side, um, telling jokes and all that kind of stuff. But the kids got the concept that cultures can be offensive and not not even realize it. And so as we go into this whole thing that we're going to do, studying refugee again this year, it helps them to understand when they start reading about these children's cultures that it won't be like, oh, that's stupid. Oh, that's dumb. Right. You know, like, no. Respect for differences. I can respect your different, your culture and you all have differences and that kind of thing. So, but I got to be my authentic self, which is, you know, act and then the kids, they, they love it. They like what I do these crazy things in their opinion and that I'm real. And they'll say that. So you're just so real. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that you taught us that growing up just to be authentic, to be real. You know, if somebody thinks you're weird, that's their opinion. And, you know, when you're real and authentic, it allows people to be more of themselves. And so, um, and yeah. how, you know, how can you go wrong with that in the world? And I thank you for joining me <laughs> um, with, in this conversation and for being yourself here and for always teaching us to do that. And um, in a little bit, um, we're going to tell you all how you can get in touch with my mother. She is also a tutor um, and has a has a um, a tutoring program called Better Than Good Grades. And if you just want to talk briefly about that to let the people know what it's about, and then I will wrap up for us and tell them where they where they can find you. 
Yeah, so it's more than good grades. <laughs> All right, more than good grades. Um, and I, I, I like to tutor students, especially in English and reading. I do some math up to about Algebra 1, Algebra 2, but don't, don't come running to my door for that. I do know someone who's really good in, in tutoring in Algebra, but if your kid needs some support in English and reading, um, you know, I do hour sessions. You can come as often as you like. You know, it's up to you. But I try to get the student, number one, to build, I try to build confidence in that student that they do have strengths. They do have uh, areas in which they are outstanding. And they sometimes they need that pointed out to them that they know that. And then we build from that. So I want my whole desire with um, More Than Good Grades is to get students to understand that you're not learning for a grade. You're learning because you want to learn. Yeah. And it's something that you want to know. And that, you know, you have the, the even though, you know, your school may say you have to do this particular assignment. I want to tutor you not just to get that assignment done. I want to tutor you that even in that assignment, we can do something different, but can't, you know, attack the same skill mm-hmm. and get the same uh, uh, productivity out of you that now when you go back and attack that thing that you have to do, you understand the concepts and you know how to do it. And now you can, even though you may not still may not enjoy it totally, you know how to do it. Right. And so all I ask is that my families, I, I always, I, I want to interview my families. I want to talk to you. I want to find out where you are, but I especially want to know from the parents, how invested are you? Because just because you pay me the fee, your kid shows up to be tutored. doesn't mean your kid's going to learn. You have to be on them. You have to hold them accountable by holding yourself accountable. And when, if that doesn't happen, you're going to feel like, you know, you've wasted your money when in reality you didn't do your part. So, you know, if you do your part and I do my part, they, your child does their part. That kid's going to be a lifelong learner. And like me, they'll, now that you have Google, you don't have to get an encyclopedia. You don't have to get a dictionary and a thesaurus. That dinosaur age is over and your kid can have a ball. I learn yeah. all kinds of stuff and all kinds of interactive things um, through homeschool, especially now that we're virtual a lot. So yeah. I look forward to having a, a bunch of families, especially with the summer coming. Yeah, the um, summer's coming. can't hurt. But- the offer is virtual. So wherever you are, you can access this incredible resource. Mom, thank you so much for being on here today. And I'm sure right after this, you will also pick up your phone and call me. Um, so <laughs> we're saying goodbye to you all. Um, but <laughs> have a great day, everybody. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mom. So there you have it. A look into the world of homeschooling, teaching, how to be your child's best advocate, and so much more. I hope that you also gained a deeper connection to my mother's story and even a bit of my story so that you understand a huge chunk of my motivation behind starting this podcast. If you want to check out Pam's virtual tutoring services for your student in grades three through nine, or even to refer a family that you know, you can get in touch with her at www.morethangoodgrades.com. Simply scroll down to the show notes where you'll find the link to her website. So what'd you think? How will you take what you learned today on the Ed Gap Evolution podcast to make sure that more children and families know that they have more options for building a magnificent future? If you like what you heard and want to get notified when the next episode goes live, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll notify you when the next episode is out. Don't forget to check the show notes where I share information on today's guests and yes, we do have a website. You can always pop in on us at www.eggapevolution.com. Again, I'm Mariah Phillips, and I leave you with this. Embrace the evolution, y'all.